Mentality Monsters I'm going to use the word with the Orange well Rugby team Someone press that arm Take it off Liverpool <laughs> Let's take it off the Reds and let's attach it to the Orland Rugby team OTB AM Live weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app OTB AM with Gillette Labs Get the ultimate shave or your money back Neon Night Edition available now we're uh, delighted to welcome Ugo Manya, uh, ex-England and Harlequins, uh, to the show. Ugo, good morning to you. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, we, uh, we're we in the nice period where we're reflecting on how we managed to bounce from the success of the Grand Slam into the World Cup. A slightly different environment, I suspect, in English rugby at the moment. It is. I guess it's a period of reflection. Obviously, um, a disappointed Six Nations, certainly not the results or some of the performances that we'd wanted, but bounced straight back into the Gallagher Premiership Heineken Cup. So uh, for the teams competing in that, um, I guess a sense, sense of excitement. Harlequins play Saracens at the Tottenham um, Hotspur Stadium this weekend. So that's a big game off the back of playing multiple internationals. So uh, hopefully the players can bounce back into that, get comfortable in their club environments and uh, start reaching the peaks of the performances, which we know they're capable of. It, it, that's... Um split personality that you must have if you're an England international where the uh, the club has such a, a power and a draw over you and you've got such responsibility to it. Is there any way for Steve Borthwick to surf that and, and still produce a, an English international team that can compete with France and Ireland and New Zealand and South Africa at the moment? Yeah, I, I think that. And some people might think, well, you're deluded by thinking that. But if you're to go through the players and look at perhaps... Not some of the performance in the Six Nations, but the potential of the players. Then I'm finding it difficult to to not suggest that they can still be really competitive and having a th- two and a half, three month preseason. I know there's only a few warm up matches to go, but I think that period of during that preseason this summer is going to be critical. Getting everyone on the same page, totally understanding the philosophy. Um, Steve Borthwick hasn't had time he just hasn't you know and I, I think that's really clear to be able to state that when you look at Ireland and France and they're into that they're at the end of their four-year cycle building towards this World Cup Steve Borthwick this is we were stepping into week eight of it and you can see that gap in terms of the performances of course but when I look at the individuals uh, when I look at their capability when I look at what History has shown me from their performances, yes, they underperformed to their ability. But the question is, how can we get all of the players that are involved in English rugby at the moment and available to play in the World Cup, how can we get them touching, reaching their their potential? Hugo, uh, your view on like whether... I was going to ask you, are England better or worse off now than when Eddie Jones left? But I'm almost taken from what you're saying that it's sort of irrelevant in the sense that it's a, it's a work in progress. I think so. The, the debate as to whether it was the right time for Eddie and Steve Borthwick or the rest of it, I think that's kind of been parts because our situation is our situation. So how do we get the very best out of it? And I honestly, I put so much emphasis on, on that summer. Um, Steve Borthwick said in the press conferences last weekend that they have to close that gap and they've got to learn and get that centre cohesion quicker than any other international rugby team. You look at the kind of the top five nations and they have that sense of stability, same coaches, same voices, a few different tweaks here and there, but they've had that consistency for four years. England obviously don't have that. I look at, I look at Irish rugby at the minute, not just 
what uh, Johnny Sexton, Andy Farrell and the rest of the team did. But I look at what they're doing in the 20s. So that connectivity of pathway performance, which ultimately has provided them two Grand Slams across the last five rounds, which, which is unbelievable. That's that's exceptional. Um, English rugby doesn't have that model domestically and then going into the international game. So we have to find our own way. I think France have done a remarkable job since 2019. Fabien Galtier came into that coaching staff overlooking it knowing that he was going to take the reins the minute that World Cup finished. And he's been embedded there, brought in the likes of Sean Edwards um, and developed a game plan, as well as having some extraordinary players like Antoine Dupont, who surely go down as one of the greatest of our generation. And it feels hard even saying that, but he's certainly worthy of it, considering he's still only 26, isn't he? Yeah, it's sensational, right? And like, look, we, the, the French. I, I would on home soil. I'd make the, the French the favourites to win the World Cup. It, it, they they did have a big power struggle with the clubs, where they got a bit more access to the players, and they obviously have rules in place about the the number of um, uh, GIF players who are qualified to, who are allowed to play in the top fourteen. English rugby still seems to be kind of at war with the between the clubs and the RFU. Or if there's ever a piece, it's always a a very tenuous piece. Yeah, I wouldn't say English rugby was at war with one another at the minute. So you've got Simon Massey-Taylor, who's the CEO of Premiership Rugby. He used to work at England Rugby. So having the understanding being on both sides of the fence, I think, really helps the conversation and the relationship. And there is a strong relationship. Then you've got Bill Sweeney, the CEO of English Rugby. He obviously understands that. Um, and we're currently actually negotiating a PGA, the professional game agreement. That's going to be critical as to what that looks like for the success of English rugby going forward. I do think everyone understands where we are. There's still the legacy of COVID, which some clubs are suffering from. And we've seen some of the governance within the game hasn't quite been where it needed to be. We've lost two clubs in the Gallagher Premiership. So I think when things go badly there there's a real sense of collaborations and that's with the owners within the within the Gallagher premiership that's with the CEO and English rugby and if you can connect the dots and everyone understands how one how one can help another then we'll, we should get to a good agreement which will give a platform and the the infrastructure for the game to grow and reach its potential also I, I was unaware of the, the uh, PGA negotiations. Is that uh, a process that's coming to an end? Is it, is it like how long do you think before one is, is publicly announced? Um, so the PGA agreement, to the best of my knowledge, comes to an end at the end of the season. So there are negotiations for, in, for a new contract, the terms of what that's going to look like, which ordinarily be a, a during a World Cup cycle, could be four years. Um, so yeah, all, all of that's happening right now. And so the deep dive into what what needs to be done. And by the way, the Gallagher Premiership, I, I work in it, I see it every single week, and it blows my mind as to the quality and the level of competitiveness on the pitch. The international game, obviously England haven't been where they've needed to be since 2019, and we're trying to work on that now. But how can one complement the other? And so those conversations, those contracts, the terms of references and details within it have certainly been worked on right now. Just on a more short-term uh, issue, Hugo, the, just around the uh, out-half selection, like looking at Owen Farrell at the weekend, he really looks like a wartime consigliere. Like he's prowling around the pitch. He's such a presence. He's such a leader. He's a bloody good player. Um, I, I think I'm right to say you were one of the ones that was calling for Smith pre-France. Are you, are you, uh, you can cl- bring clarity to that if I'm wrong on that. And then just your view on 
like it feels like he might be the right player at the right time for England for now and maybe Smith is the more uh, sort of intermediate um, uh, term replacement. Yeah, it's an interesting conversation and it's one that's coveted so many headlines, column inches, and I almost feel it's 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 an answer that needs is a question that needs to be answered, but also um, it's it kind of acts as a bit of a distraction, I think. So we take Marcus Smith played against France. I think you could have had Dan Carter <laughs> at the peak of his power, two thousand and five, with Jonah Lomu on the wing, and England still wouldn't have won. It wasn't about the performance of the ten, in my opinion. It's our inability to be able to get on the front foot and show that level of physicality. You can play any style of rugby you want to play, but the fundamentals of the game in the amateur era today and perhaps in the next 20 years will forever remain the same. It's a contact collision sport. And if you don't win contacts or collisions, you can't play any type of rugby. So the debate around who plays at 10, I think, is a secondary or tertiary question. The first thing is, like, how do we want to play? The minute you understand how you want to play. Then you implement players within that system. You have to look at who your best players are and put a game plan that suits them the best. But once you have sheer clarity or clear clarity, actually they they say the same thing. Once you have clarity, apologies, over how you want to play and the direction of travel, then I think the players fit into that system. Any player who wants to play for Ireland understands, I think, what it takes to play for Ireland, whether you're in the forwards or the backs, and you can go for all the different positions, but can't you? In the front row, I think you need to quite clearly be a brilliant scrummager, but you look at the whole pack and they're all ball playing, they're all ball playing forwards. It's really obvious as to how they, how they want to play. So if you play sat outside of that group, you need to work on your skills, you need to work on your fitness to be able to fit into that. And England, whilst they've um, had a look and experimented to, to a relative extent across the last five matches is still exploring, I think at least, how they want to play. Once they get that clarity, I think the players then fit into the systems. Whose vision is it for that? Is that, is that Borthwick's vision? And are there lessons, you know, obviously haven't watched them very closely at Leicester. Do you expect it to be similar or was Leicester specific to the environment at Leicester? Yeah, um, I think Steve Borthwick got asked the question um, before the start of the tournament, can um, domestic game plans or the way in which you work at club level work at international level? I think historically it has. You go back to 2007, South Africa winning it with a, a good set piece, good defence, good kicking game. Um, but I think in this World Cup, it, it's, you need more. Ireland have a good kicking game. They have a very good kicking game. They have a dominant set piece and they've got the best defence, the best defence. Simon Easterby doesn't get enough credit for the job he's doing. In fact, for as much as we can talk about Ireland's attack, it's actually Ireland's defence, which is their standout performer. So there's that. But on top of all of that, Ireland's unbelievable um, ruthless efficiency when they get into the areas that matter, the 22, they come away with points. So there you go. For France, they do all those fundamental things very well, but they have this wild X factor and X factor players. New Zealand will have it, South Africa have it, Australia, Argentina, Scotland have it. So I think you just need more. I think Steve Borthwick is a very, very diligent man, super bright, um, loves his analysis, a proper student of the game. He'll realise that England will have to develop their game to compete with the best teams in the world because you've only got to watch them and see what they produce. 
um, and you've got to understand to be able to match or go one better, that you need to have a game plan which isn't identical to that, but certainly has aspects which can really challenge it. Yeah, you actually are coming across quite positive about the future here. Is that largely on the basis of what you think might be able to happen in that window where for an unbroken period of time, everybody who is in the England camp will be focused exclusively on England, which obviously happens so rarely for, yeah, for those. Yeah, of course. I think um, it's quite understandable as a fan to to be to for your initial response to be highly emotional, right? England won two out of five. That's not good enough. Everyone understands that and accepts that. But when you look at the potential, when you look at the when you look at the players, when you look at the time they're going to have in camp, and in fact, when you look at their pool, you're thinking, hang on a second. I was chatting to Sam Warburton Sunday night, who was on Rugby Special, did the podcast of him after, and he said, People might think that I sound crazy, and by the way, he's a brilliant pundit. He said, I could see Wales get to a semi-final. But people would look at, listen to that statement and go, what are you on about? Like, you won one game out of five. But I get what he's saying. I think the pre-season, having significant time in camp, becomes acts a bit of a leveller. You go into a six nations where you effectively have 10, 11 training sessions, and then you have to hit the ground running. And that's where I think Ireland take quite a leap on a lot of other teams. They always hit the the ground running week one because they have 12 out of their 15 that come from Leinster. Leinster play a very similar, if not identical way into which Ireland plays. So get that sense of cohesion is very easy. For Scotland with two different teams and you've got Finn from Paris coming in, takes a bit longer. With England, brand new coach, 10 training sessions coming from 11 different teams, trying to implement that one game plan. But when you have that undivided attention, for two and a half, three months, where everyone could be on the same page. They're also bringing in Richard Wigglesworth, Alan Walters, who is the strength conditioning coach for South Africa in their last World Cup campaign. Then you can see a sense of positivity. We're, we're five months away, six months away from, from a World Cup. I'm certainly not going to sit in the camp that it's crisis. It's terrible. I accept where England are right now, but I'm excited about where England could potentially go. I think it's obviously a brutal learning experience too. You mentioned uh, Alan Waters there. I think he's at Munster before South Africa, so we're yep. pretty familiar with him in this part of the world. But there was nobody overseeing the full strength and conditioning uh, over the course of the Six Nations the way he will be when he comes in. I'm sure there was some influence and you know they didn't have nobody doing it, but they'd, the previous guy left before the Six Nations, in retrospect maybe, if if uh, Borthwick had his time again, they might get somebody for more continuity and manage that transition a little bit better because the players didn't look fit enough. They didn't look like they were at the level of uh, Ireland or even France um, when those two teams played them. Uh, there was a, like a, a little bit of a difference, but at international rugby, that's significant. So it's a brutal introduction to the test environment for Borthwick. And the challenge for him now is to make sure that he's able to take all of the lessons on and sift through the stuff that's really important, you know, which is the style and the forwards and the fitness and the uh, tactics and the stuff that's not that important about, like, ultimately the the 10 decision will be made by who's best uh, to implement the game plan on the field. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Like, let the main thing be the main thing. So figure out what that is and then the details, I think, follow that. You have to have a framework, a game plan and the one thing he really needs is time. Um, don't have a huge amount of it, but, you know, I, knowing the type of personality that Steve is, he's so consistent. The exact same as a player, like an absolute rugby 
student, loved it, really diligent, and speak to anyone that's worked with him at Leicester. And it's one of those, when you're at England camp, international camp, you ask the players, how's the coach? Oh, he's great. Well, of course you're going to say it's great, but you speak to players that worked with him who aren't playing international rugby, and they swear by him. They really love the sense of clarity and purpose that he gives. Of course, it didn't manifest itself in terms of results, and he'd have been disappointed. But the one thing which you have to go through, whether it's good or bad, unfortunately, some of the experience for England was bad, is that there's a real sense of honesty because you can't hide from some of the performances. You can't hide after the France performance, can you? So you can kind of put away all the BS and just go, this is where we're at. This is where we need to get to. And the question that needs to be answered is, how do we take our game from where it currently is to where we think we can be? And that requires a a good level of understanding, deep level of introspection um, and reflection, and then trying to communicate that with with the group, um, which might look different come the summer, come the World Cup, because um, there's some big opportunities now for some players to get some game time under their belt. The, 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 the domestic rugby doesn't replicate the international game. It, it just doesn't. But across the summer, with one of the most highly regarded fitness coaches in world rugby being in charge of that department, I think physically, fitness-wise, tactically, England will be absolutely on the money. But then the question is, will it still be good enough? Because every team, by the way, will have a two-and-a-half-month, three-month preseason. You look at the Southern Hemisphere teams that go into the rugby championship, they play the highest level of international rugby. They play the rugby championship, um, go into mini camps, and then they're ready for a World Cup. So, um, you know, they'd have sharpened their tools 100%. We'll have our World Cup war matches across the summer. And everyone, in terms of fitness, understanding, should be on a level playing field. But in terms of the development of a team, it takes longer than seven weeks. It takes longer than a couple of months. And that's the gap which England have to close um, and you can do that a number of ways. We've all enjoyed the last few weeks here you go we've been uh, obviously celebrating events over the weekend uh, yeah. but in the Irish psyche we have a lot of World Cup PTSD so we've spent the last 48 hours sort of talking ourselves away from the uh, possibility of winning the thing. Are we going to win the thing? I mean it's hard to bet against Ireland right now. I um, t- to achieve what they achieved at the weekend was truly remarkable and so fitting on so many different um, um, reasons. For Johnny Sexton, for his first kick and in his last game, the Six Nations be the all-time point top scorer, I think is unbelievable. For the consistency that Ireland have shown is brilliant. But I think they'll take more out of their tour to New Zealand than they will from this Grand Slam winning. And that's not to take anything away from the Six Nations. To be one test down in a three-test series away in New Zealand, having never done it before, that's brilliant. Ireland and some of those players have won Grand Slams before. They know what it takes. But with an eye on the World Cup, it's great to have in your muscle memory that you have the ability to do things that you've never done before. And if Ireland are to win a World Cup, that's exactly what they're going to have to do. They're going to have to get past the quarterfinals, which is something that's eluded them, semifinals and final. And now they've got that muscle memory of, oh, well, we went to New Zealand. We lost the first test. We bounced back for the final two. And there were injuries that we're still able to do it. I think it's remarkable. I also think the Southern Hemisphere will give us a bit of a rude awakening when the Rugby Championship starts. Remember us. 
hey, we're New Zealand, we're quite good at rugby, South Africa the same, Argentina, Australia. So I think that'd be competitive. But I'm just absolutely loving the narrative at the moment of if you want to be the number one side in the world, you have to chase us up in the Northern Hemisphere. For, for, for so long, it's been, how do we get close to South Africa? How do we get close to New Zealand? And they'll be part of the conversation. But the world's looking at, how do we get close to Ireland? How do we get close to France? And that's great. We've not had someone win the World Cup for 20 years. And the stars are aligning a little bit with it being a Northern Hemisphere World Cup and number one and number two in the world occupying those positions, Ireland and France, that this may have been, this may be the best opportunity we have to reclaim the William Webb Ellis and hold it up north for a little bit. That would be good. Hugo, great to have you with us. Thanks a million, man. Cheers. Cheers. Take care. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now.